suffer. Okay, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted passages in all of the Bible, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 and verse 20. Mark 11 verse 20. I want to welcome uh, uh, those of you who are listening to us by the internet or by our podcast. If you live in the area, you really need to come and worship with us in person sometimes. My jokes are funnier in person. My voice is more uh, mellifluous in person. That's a big word, isn't it? You learn that word today. In other words, it's more easy to listen. Have you ever listened to yourself, like your recorded voice? It's, do you, have you ever done that? I listen to our podcasts, and my voice does not sound like it sounds on the podcast. That voice sounds really whiny. <laughs> my voice is much richer, and, uh, you know, to me at least. So, if you uh, live in the area, it would be really good if you would visit us uh, sometime in person. We're in a series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. It's called The Last Days of Jesus Christ. And we've been walking through the events of the last eight days of Jesus' life. We're now, in the passage that we're in this morning, we're now in the last week of His life. And I want to read this passage in its entirety this morning because I think you will best be able to see why this A particular passage of Scripture is so terribly misunderstood. And I'm not going to lie to you, this is a very difficult passage of Scripture. It taxed my brain all week long, even with all the tools that are available to me to study it. So so just a cursory reading of this passage would be very easily misunderstood. So let's look at Mark chapter 11. Let's start at verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree... This is the fig tree from last week. Some of you, if you were here last week, you'll remember. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say uh, will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Wow. Do you, anybody see why this passage is so easily misunderstood and misinterpreted? Whatever you ask for in prayer... Believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. What does that mean? I mean, what does it mean? Like, like I want a better golf game. I'd like to shoot in the 70s. Right now I shoot, right now I shoot in, the, in the not 70s. Uh, if, I just, if I just pray to shoot in the 70s and believe, when I walk out on the golf course, are my drives suddenly going to get longer and straighter? Is my putting suddenly going to get more accurate? Because that's what this sounds like, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like that to you? If that's what it meant, you know what I would do? I would turn this church into the Oprah Winfrey Show, the Oprah Winfrey Show. Every church service, I'd be giving stuff away to everyone who comes. Like, I'd just pray for stuff, believe I have it, and I'd give everyone who comes here to church uh, that day a new car. Or like an all-expenses-paid trip to your favorite vacation spot around the world. We'd be doing like 15 services a weekend just to pack everybody in, if that's what it meant. Now, there are some people who would say, Jeff, if you go out 
uh, to play golf this week and you don't shoot in the 70s, it's because you didn't believe enough. You didn't have enough faith. Like that's, that's on you. That's not on God. That's what, that's what some people would say. Now let me ask you a question. Does it make sense to you that God would make himself a vending machine for us? Like, like you know, just drop enough uh, faith in the slot and I'll spit out whatever you want. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Does that sound like a good idea to you? I mean, on the one hand, I know you're thinking, well, yeah, it kind of does. But it would be like giving lots of money to junior high kids, right? I mean, like they wouldn't know what to do with it. We don't, we don't know what's best for us. It would be a terrible idea. And so to understand this passage, that, that's not what Jesus is saying. To understand this passage, we have to go back into the context to understand it. If you were with us last week, or if you uh, listened to last week's sermon uh, by the, our podcast or, or the Internet, you know that Jesus issued, in the passage that we looked at last week, he issued a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders of Israel, accusing them of a hollow religiosity. And as a, as a kind of living illustration, the day before this passage, Jesus had cursed a, a fig tree for its fruitfulness. And this, this was an illustration. It was kind of a living illustration. And, and this cursing of the fig tree pointed to Israel's temple in the same way that the tree gave the impression that it had something to eat, the temple gave the impression that it was a place that was really dedicated to the service of God. But in reality, the temple profited only the priestly hierarchy. It profited nothing for God. And so the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the people God had redeemed from captivity in Egypt, precisely so that they would produce spiritual fruit and as a result cause all of the nations of the world to see the glory of God. Those very people were fruitless. Like there was, like there was no life change in them for all of their worship. There was no life change in these people at all. They weren't changed by their worship. It was all hollow. And so the context of this passage of Scripture is not prayer. Prayer is mentioned, right? I mean, I get it. Prayer is mentioned. But the context of this passage is spiritual fruitfulness. It's like, it's like experiencing a changed life as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. I challenged those of you who were here last week to spend some time uh, last Sunday. I said, I said ask yourself... What changes am I seeing in myself? What, what changes are the people around me, my family, my friends, are the people who work with me, what changes are they seeing in me as a result of my belief in Jesus Christ? Am I just going through the motions of Christianity? Am I just practicing a hollow religiosity? Or am I practicing authentic, awe-inspiring, life-changing Christianity that is manifesting itself in abundant Spiritual fruitness, that's what I asked you to evaluate about yourselves last Sunday. Wherever you landed on that last week, I want you to understand this, in this passage, Jesus teaches us four things, I think four lessons about spiritual fruitness. And let me just give them to you up front. First is the secret 
of fruitfulness. The second is the sustenance of fruitfulness. The third is the content of fruitfulness. And the fourth is the impediment uh, to fruitfulness. The secret, the sustenance, the content, and the impediment to fruitfulness. And I want to walk through those very quickly this morning. I want to start with the secret of fruitfulness, the secret of life change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the secret to that? Well, in verses 20 and 21, Peter sees the tree that Jesus had cursed the day before, and, and Peter is blown away by the miracle. It's like, it's, like Jesus had, it's like Jesus had gone around and sprayed like a gallon of Roundup on the roots of the tree, and in one day, the whole thing was just withered up. This caught Peter's attention because it was a display of incredible power. Peter liked the power. But I want you to look at Jesus' answer. It is tantalizingly short. He says, have faith in God. Now, (laughs) it seems like really obvious, I know. But I want you to write this down because I don't think it's as obvious as it looks. The secret of fruitfulness is faith. The secret of fruitfulness is faith. Now, look, I said that the secret of fruitfulness is faith. Because I wanted to condense this so that it kind of, so that, you know, all of the points that I had all kind of, like there was a parallelism, so they all sounded, you know, like there was rhythm to it, you know what I'm saying? But that is not what Jesus said. What I want you to notice is that Jesus doesn't just say, have faith. He specifies, have faith in God. Now, why, why does he specify that? Well, the answer is, it's because everyone Everyone has faith in something, even the most hardened atheist. Nobody is is an unbeliever in the truest sense of the term. There's no such thing as an irreligious person, really. There's no such thing as a secular person, really. You either believe in the true God or else you're a slave to something that you treat as a God but really isn't, which, by the way, is called idolatry. And the fruit of idolatry is always sin and brokenness and disintegration. Let me give you an example. Imagine a man whose happiness is entirely dependent upon other people's approval of him. Like he has to have it. It's the central motivating energy in his life. That's an idol. That's an idol. Let's just play this out. Whoever the most important person is to that man in the moment, he will do anything for that person's approval. It might be his dad in the moment. In the next moment, it might be his mom. In the next moment, it might be a a teacher. Next moment, maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's another woman. No cost for this man will be too high. He has to have that person's approval. Whoever the most important person is in the moment, he has to have that person's approval approval. And he will compromise anything to get it. He will compromise relationships. He'll compromise his marriage. He'll compromise his relationship with his kids. He'll compromise his integrity, whatever. He will sacrifice all to the God of other people's approval. And so the fruit of his faith in other people's approval, well, the fruit of his faith In other people's approval, it could be any number of things. Like it could be broken friendships. It might be the disintegration of his family. It might be a compromised character. Maybe he had to do something he knew was wrong to get approval. Brokenness and disintegration always comes along 
with idols. And by the way, you know, those of you who are in City Life groups this week, one of the things that you might want to do in your group this week is to identify some of the more popular idols that people today worship. And you might even want to identify some of the idols that you worship in your own life, because there are many. The fruit of idolatry is always sin and brokenness and disintegration. But Jesus isn't out to uh, further disintegrate the world. He's out to integrate the world, to reclaim the world, to put the world back together again. And so he doesn't just say, have faith. He makes a distinction because everybody has faith. He makes a distinction. And he says, have faith in God. What God? Well, the true God of the Bible, the God that Jesus is proclaiming, the God who exists in a trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the God who proclaims that He is good, the God who loves, who so loves humanity that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the God who says that there is no one, no way to the Father but through the Lord Jesus Christ. That God. And faith is a response to that love that God has for you, which opens yourself up to God's Spirit so that God's Spirit can produce fruit in you that proclaims the beauty and the goodness of the God we worship. Fruit that instead of causing brokenness and disintegration and misery brings wholeness and integration and joy. The word the Bible would use is the word shalom. Shalom, meaning that the fruit of the Spirit of God brings wholeness and peace and harmony between people and tranquility. The secret of fruitfulness is faith in the God of the Bible. That's, that's the secret. Now, this passage teaches us also about the sustenance of fruitfulness. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. The sustenance of fruitfulness. Jesus says to Peter in verse 23, He says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it'll be done for you. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And then he says, and he goes on, he says, when you stand praying, and we'll get to those verses in just a moment, but I want you to notice that twice there he uses the word prayer. Write this down. The sustenance of fruitfulness is prayer. The way that you sustain spiritual fruitfulness is prayer. Again, this is why Jesus said, have faith in God as opposed to just have faith. You can't pray to idols. Idols don't have any power. You can pray to God, though, and unlike idols, He has the power to throw a mountain into the sea. And not only the power, but He's got the willingness to do so. But, now hear me on this, Jesus isn't trying to teach the disciples, really, how to throw mountains into seas. That's not what He's trying to teach them at all. He's trying to teach them about spiritual fruitfulness, about life change. So what is He saying here? Well, the mountain that He says, you know, throws itself into the sea. Well, that's just, that's just a metaphor. What Jesus is saying as it relates to spiritual fruitfulness, because remember, this is the context. What Jesus is saying is that there are seemingly unscalable mountains of pride and selfishness and narcissism and insecurity in each and every one of us that often prevent us from bearing spiritual fruit. 
Uh, one author by the name of Richard Rohr once wrote this. He said, Christians are usually sincere and well-intentioned until you get to real issues of ego, control, power, money, pleasure, and security. And he is right, isn't he? Yeah. We know how to put on a spiritual veneer, all of us do, for short periods of time. But there are these other things, these huge issues in our lives, these mountainous things that we just can't get past on our own. And the people who know us the best see these things the most in us. A few years ago, one of my sons uh, got really mad at me. And he told me, he said, Dad, he said, he said, those people at church, they don't know what you're really like at home. They don't know what it's like to live with you. I said, and they don't know what it's like to live with you either. But I, no, I, I didn't say that. I did not say that. He said, they don't know what it's really like to live with you. And, and he was right. What he was voicing is that there are these huge, mountainous issues in my life the people who know me the best see in me. Because I can't put a spiritual veneer around those things all the time. I can do it for short periods of time. But like I can't do it all the time. And Jesus wants us to know that if we'll look honestly inside ourselves at the mountains in our lives that prevent us from being spiritually fruitful, from experiencing real life change, and if we'll confess them and if we'll pray that God would remove them, that He is both willing and able to remove those mountains in our lives. No issue in your life is too difficult for God. You can be very confident of that. The very power that withered the fig tree is available to us, and it can remove the mountains in our lives. Now, He may do it miraculously, But more than likely, he'll do it through a combination of your effort and the help of other people, maybe the church, your city life group, your friends, your family members, people who will be caring and and supportive and honest enough with you to help you. But he'll remove those things. He's able to remove whatever it is in your life that keeps you from being fruitful. Prayer is the answer for unfruitfulness and is the sustenance for fruitfulness. But the question is, as, he, as he's talking about prayer in the context of spiritual fruitfulness, what exactly is it that you're praying for? When he says, you know, you can pray these prayers and, and boy, you know, you can just know that God will answer them. What is it exactly that you're praying for? I want to talk about the third lesson that Jesus is teaching us, and that's the content of fruitfulness. What's the content of fruitfulness? What does it look like? Look at verse 24. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, and I've, and I've highlighted this word whatever, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received, and I highlighted the word it, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Now the question is, what is that whatever that you're praying for and what is the it that he says you will undoubtedly Now, again, we know from the context that Jesus isn't saying that if you want a 2017 Ferrari FXX, just pray and believe. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is spiritual fruit. 
And to understand what spiritual fruit looks like, we have to go to another passage that describes it. And it's in Galatians 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. It's Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And it describes spiritual fruit. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This, that list right there, this is what the prayers in this passage that Jesus is referring to, this is what the prayers are for, for these things. Here's the thing. There there are so many things that I just don't know if they're in God's will for my life. Like, I don't know if it's God's will for me to buy this car or that car or to take this job or that job or to marry this girl or that girl. But one thing I do know is that it is God's will that I be changed into the character of Christ. And so when I pray for gentleness, I'm not a gentle person, let's say, and I pray for gentleness. When I pray for self-control, maybe I'm not a very self-controlled person. When I pray for love, that is the prayer that I can be absolutely confident God will answer because He wants that in my life. He will, without a doubt, work with me to develop that in me. Whatever mountains are in the way, he will, uh, He'll work through those. He'll remove those obstacles so that I can... I could begin to demonstrate these fruits of the Spirit. Without a doubt, He will do that. So the content of fruitfulness, it's that list. It's that list, let me tell you, that list is the character of Christ. That's who Christ is. That, that list in Galatians 5.22. But I want to make sure that you understand something. When we talk about the character of Christ, here's what it is. I want you to understand that Christianity, some of you, some of you undoubtedly misunderstand this. Christianity is not about reformation. It's about transformation. You cannot just be reformed into the character of Christ. No, no. You must be transformed into the character of Christ. In other words, in other words, What we're talking about here, Christianity, it's not about just changing your behavior and changing your mind, though, of course, transformation does that. It's about something more radical than that. Because you see, look, you can change your mind and you can change your way of living out of very bad motives. I mean, you can do that. It's possible to change your mind and change your way of living without really having any kind of change of heart. Like you can change your moral standards out of a desire to look better than other people or to have other people think very highly of you. You can change your moral standards out of a desire simply for honor or for glory. You can change your moral standards out of a desire just for a little bit of peace. I'm not going to live like that anymore. I just, it's just too chaotic. I just want peace. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible talks about the character of Christ. It talks about a change that works from the inside out through the Spirit of God. Here's here's what I mean. Imagine that you had an orange grove and like you decided that you wanted to go into the applesauce business. So how are you going to get apples out of an orange grove? Well, somebody says, well, why why don't you just prune prune your, your orange grove back? So you go ahead, you you prune, you, you cut back the trees, and you prune them back as far as you can. What happens? We're well, going to get a lot more fruit, but it'll be oranges. It'll still be oranges. 
Well, somebody says, well, maybe we ought to kind of prime the pump here a little bit. Let's paste some apples on there. And maybe that'll kind of get the inertia moving in the direction of apples. And of course, that doesn't work either, right? Because the oranges will come in under the apples and the oranges will knock the apples off. If you want apples, you have to completely dig up the orange grove and you have to replant it. If you want new fruit, you have to have new roots. Now, we can laugh at the poor sap all along uh, uh, who wants to try to get apples out of his orange grove without digging up his trees, without giving them new roots. But can I ask you something? What do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? When you get the sense, like you get the sense in your, in, in your mind, you go, well, you know what, I need, I need some more of God. What do you do? Well, a lot of you will say, well, you know, I'll read the Bible more. I'll start coming to church a little more. I'd better stop that particular practice. Better stop that particular practice too. You know, that's, that's what you do. And what are you doing? What are you doing when you do that? You're cutting back your tree. You're cutting back your life. That, that's not enough. That won't do it. And some of you have been spending all of your life doing that kind of thing in spurts. So you do this. You try to reform for a while. You prune back. That doesn't do it. Moral reformation won't do it at all, not a bit. Instead, you need an action of God in which His Holy Spirit, and that means Christ's very life and strength and power, you need that Holy Spirit implanted in the base of your heart so that the root of your heart is transformed. That's what you have to have. There that seed germinates and it produces fruit and it produces blossoms and flowers that only a supernatural seed can produce. That means that there's a complete transformation. What's happened is that there's been this complete change at the root or at the base. That's why Galatians 5, that's why that passage on the screen refers to this as the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't call it the fruit of humanity. It doesn't call it the fruit of the human flesh. It doesn't call it the fruit of human effort. It's not the fruit of human reformation. It's the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. That's what transformation is. And so the content of fruitfulness is the very character of Christ Himself implanted by the Holy Spirit. When you come to a place that you recognize that you need a Savior and that you say, yes, Lord Jesus, I can't change myself enough. You need to change me. That's what, that's what the character of Christ looks like. That's when it began. That's when the Holy Spirit is implanted into your very soul. The content of fruitfulness, well, it's the character of Christ. Now, last thing. Jesus wants to warn us here about the impediment to fruitfulness. And I want you to look at verse 25. He says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, I'm going to tell you something. At first, I don't know about you, but this verse scares me. Does it scare you? Because it seems to contradict everything else that the Bible teaches about God's forgiveness of our sins. Everywhere else in the Bible, the Bible teaches about salvation, about forgiveness of sins by grace. But here it sounds like your salvation is predicated upon your forgiveness of other people. That's not what this is saying. 
Here's what Jesus is saying. Think about this. To be forgiven by God, there, there has to be a willingness to look long and hard and honestly at your own sins. We, we talked about that a few minutes ago, to look at the parts of your life that are producing the fruit of idols rather than the fruit of the Spirit. But there are some people, both believers in Jesus Christ and unbelievers too, there are some people who are just unwilling to ever do that, unwilling to ever admit that they're wrong, unwilling to look at any part of their life and say, you know what, that's sin. Lord, I confess that. Please forgive me. That is, that's sin in my life. Now, here's, here's the question. How forgiving is a person like that going to be toward people who hurt him or hurt her? How forgiving? toward people who sin against them. People who forgive the people who hurt them are the kind of people who recognize their own depravity and their own brokenness and their own sin and who know that they've hurt other people deeply too. But if you're not that kind of person who recognizes the depth of your own brokenness and your own sin and your own depravity, there's no way that you will ever forgive anyone else. And there's no way that you can be forgiven of your own sins either because you won't own them. You won't own them. The impediment to spiritual fruitfulness is unforgiveness. Like in your own life, the impediment to your unfruitfulness at your work, in your marriage, with your kids, with somebody who hurt you, the impediment to, unfruitful, or to fruitfulness is unforgiveness. Why? Why is that an impediment? Because that's forgiveness is the very essence of Christianity. On the cross, Jesus Christ took on the mountain of human sin and was thrown into the sea of God's wrath on the cross for the sins of humanity. He absorbed the pain of our sins for us so that we would never have to. And I don't know if you realize this, but do you understand that that is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world? And it's what distinguishes Jesus from every other religious leader in the world. Think about this. Every other religious leader came as just a teacher. Every other religious founder said, you know, here's, here's the way to God, uh, or eternity, or nirvana, or self-actualization, or whatever. Follow it. That's what every other religious leader does. He says, here's the way, you follow it. But Jesus didn't come as just a teacher. He came as a Savior. He came to die because He knew there was no way that we could follow the law perfectly. No matter how hard we try to reform ourselves so that we could live up to God's perfection, we can't do it. And so a sacrifice had to be offered, and that sacrifice was Jesus. And look, if you can't see your own brokenness and your own depravity and your own unworthiness, you'll never be able to show the love and the grace of Jesus Christ to the people in your relational world. You will be prideful. You will be judgmental. You will be legalistic. You will be mean-spirited. And you will be unforgiving. Those kinds of people who are like that are so busy looking for other people's sins that they never see their own. 
And they miss the opportunities that are all around them to drive people in their world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's the purpose of spiritual fruitfulness, to drive people to Jesus Christ. God wants all of the people of the world to experience His glory and His beauty and His power and His love and His grace and His holiness and His justice and His joy and His peace and His goodness and His faithfulness and His mercy and His righteousness and His kindness and His forgiveness through the lives of His people. That's what God wants to have happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God working through His people. He wants the rest of the world, to see His glory. And it happens through the changed lives of His people. Nobody actually learns that God loves them by being told. They have to be shown. And when you forgive people, you show them the love of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, as we talk about, think about spiritual fruitfulness, there are, in everyone in this room, certainly in my life, there are all sorts of mountains of sin and issues in our lives that uh, keep us from being able to be spiritually fruitful. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for every person in this room. I pray for us as a church collectively. Lord, remove those mountains in our lives. Give us the desire to have those mountains removed. Give us the willingness to look very hard and very close and very honestly at our own lives and to be able to see and to say, yes, that's sin. Lord, forgive it. Move this mountain in my life. And Lord, as a result, would you make us a church that bears enormous spiritual fruit in the city of Evansville so that The city of Evansville is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we worship and that we pray today. Amen.